maybe we'll take everyone back to when they're 15 or 16 or 17 and you don't have a car right oh yeah when you don't have a car what are you dreaming of diggles you're dreaming of any car dreaming about the bus This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Doogles, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Getting after it. Yeah, Doogles, there's some bookkeeping that we got to take care of right off the top. Okay. There's three things. First is, um, I feel like before cell phones, a wrong number happened more frequently because everyone had to dial that thing. So I remember as a kid, like, it seemed like you pick up a phone and 10% of the time, it's like, sorry, wrong number. Okay. I have a feeling that Dougal's over there had like some fancy spiel when someone called him, called his house with the wrong number. I, I, there's no such thing as wrong numbers. <laughs> you just start chatting? Yeah. This is now we struck up a new friendship. This leads me to last night. It's about 10 o'clock. Sometimes when I take notes for the show, I send myself a text message, right? And somehow I had selected a number that was one digit off of my cell phone. So like basically some people call that cell phone neighbors. Have you ever heard that? No, because you just made it up. Continue. This is what I texted some random person last night. Morgan Housel dopamine. One text. Next text. Bubble. Next text meta craziness and at midnight <laughs> at midnight this poor soul texted me back what <laughs> is that terrible <laughs> turns out a few months ago i had sent him some data on housing market starts and some other boring investing podcast tips that's amazing can you keep this going i i've tried to decide i might use your methodology and just turn this into a friend like yeah i think you should save the number as some, I don't know, Jimmy, whatever it might be, and just like start start up a, a beautiful friendship. They can start coming over for Thanksgiving. Okay, that's point number one of housekeeping. Point number two is a quiz, but we're going to get to that after we hear about the Skippy and Dougals correspondent that we sent out to North Carolina this week to see the Duke Blue Devils take on the lowly Wake Forest Demon Deacons. Could we get an in-game report, Dougals? Yeah, I mean, first of all, they crushed the Blue Devils crushed a uh, one the point Demon home, right? Is that the yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's binary at the end, so it's all just a it's all just a crush. So there's this dude on Wake Forest by the name of Appleby, last name Appleby. He's a little guy in basketball standards, like yeah. probably has me by about fifty percent height, but <laughs> little guy by basketball standards. And he was just doing whatever he wanted to do up in there in the court. And at the end of the game, you know, point five seconds left for no particular reason, fires up this long distance three swish. And I was like, man, if we hadn't made those free throws, that also seemed like they didn't really necessarily matter. Like a few seconds before, whoo, game ave, as the French would yeah. say. Yeah, we should uh, sign Appleby to NIL deal for the podcast. Oh I'm going to reach out. Yeah. All right. The last uh, order of opening business is a quiz for you. So there is an activist investor named nelson pelts mm-hmm. that's all up in disney's business yeah all up in disney's business one of the things he's concerned about currently is executive compensation and to give an example of why he thinks executive compensation at disney is out of control he talks about 
Bob Iger's compensation since 2007. You want to venture to put a number on that? This is total compensation? Total compensation of Robert Iger, the CEO of Disney, okay. since 2007. All right. So let's talk. Let's just say about 15 years. I know there are a couple of years that he wasn't there, but I'm just sure, going to yeah. round it. 15 years. I'm going to go ahead and say $2 billion. Okay. It's only $1.1 billion. Okay. <laughs> only? I think that's an insanely high number. Now, maybe I'm crazy, but to me, that's pretty obvious that maybe executive compensation isn't in line with reality. Since from 2017 to 2021, he got $473 million of that. So to call it a half a billion dollars in four years, it's craziness. Am I the only one? Uh, no, you're probably not the only one. I'm doing a, a quick... Uh... Checkity duda. So if you if I just do this rough eyeballing, Disney's stock has gone up by about, and it, this is not all CEO, of course, but has gone up by about three to four X okay. over the period of time. Uh, its market cap is at about two hundred billion dollars. So that means let's just say it went from sixty to two hundred, roughly, like just to sure. eyeball it. Um, so. There's $140 billion in value creation that has happened for the organization during that period. This is I'm this is all like high level, right? But there, there are multiple ways to look at compensation, is all that I'm saying. If you look at an absolute dollar figure, that's one. And I'm not saying that it's not ridiculous, but I'm saying if you look at an absolute dollar figure, that's one thing. If you say, if I told you uh the CEO of a large organization received 0.7% of the value that they created over a 14 year period, what would you say? Okay. I can't even answer that question. I got to go with <laughs> Google's put on his management consulting hat and just talked value creation and threw out some garbage to say, oh, one individual on earth clearly needs a billion bucks. I, I'm as much of a free market capitalism uh, capitalist as anyone, but oh my goodness. Like, we're talking about figures that are so much money that people can't even spend it. And this goes to something I, I want to let you jump into your fishbowl, but I want to talk about Morgan Housel's piece this week where he talks about spending. And for certain people, it becomes only about they spend things only to have something they can't have, almost regardless of price. This is a topic that I continue to be fascinated with. This is part of the reason why I'm fascinated with the David Marks status and culture book, because like there are these people out there and it's not I'm not immune to it that just there there's never enough money and when I see someone get a paycheck of a billion bucks congrats to Bob Iger like it's this isn't really about him but what wants and needs could he not fulfill if that paycheck was 100 million or even 20 million dollars I'm not sure I'm not sure what they are materially not yeah. much yeah, not much, but I, I think it ends up. So like, I, I'm actually just as you know me for a couple decades now. Yeah, I just I just come after it, like without any uh, without any need to have a view. <laughs> I'll just come after an argument. Uh, so I love it. I think one thing that's also interesting here, if you ignore the fact that a CEO, let's let's abstract it outside of Disney for a moment, Please. if you ignore the fact that a CEO was hired in and then given a compensation and instead go back to, let's go to like a Bezos. And you say that the CEO started the organization. 
Oh, that's a different ball game. I, no, I'm but, not, but yeah, but, okay. I, but, but my, my, the, the abstract point that I want to make, I'm not disagreeing with what you just stated, but the abstract point I want to make is, is there a cap on the maximum amount of value that was created for an organization that the CEO should get? No, not at all. And, and in the Zuckerberg or Bezos or there's countless other founders that have built the company to zero to one of the world's largest and most impressive enterprises. And they own a lot of those shares. I mean, even a lot of the companies that Musk has had a part in and, and like built from scratch. I don't, I have no issue. Again, I don't really have an issue with Bob Iger's compensation. I, but it's different when it's your company, you build it from scratch. Then it just is to show up somewhere, say value creation a bunch of times, ride a 13 year bull run and be like, oh, there's a billion bucks. I, I, my point is more just like, what do you do with a billion bucks? Like, how does that make anyone's life better? Okay, we're, we're going to get to your point, your actual point in a moment, because I do like yeah. Morgan's piece. But let me yeah. give you one mo. Let me give you one mo. Because we need to define from scratch. With what I'm about okay. to throw out. We need to find Because Musk scratch. didn't build t- Tesla from scratch. He just came in, bought some shares. I'm I'm I'ma go, I'ma go even further back. I'm gonna go okay. further back decades, my friend. I'm gonna go back decades to a textile business. I I have no problem with Buffett, man. You're gonna talk Berkshire Hathaway. Buffett goes in, buys significant pieces of business businesses. Sometimes he buys the entire business. And he sees the fruits of that labor. Like he is deploying capital and he's seen excellent return on those investments. You and I are investors. This is an investing podcast. Like by all means, again, it's not the absolute dollar figure that really, I'm, I'm not even fired up. I don't know the right term here. I'm just kind of like a billion yeah. bucks. It's a talking it's a, it's a, it's a lot of dollars. It's a lot yeah. of dollars. Okay. I, I mean, so let's... Buffett is worth how many billions and probably makes a billion bucks in dividends. I don't know those numbers off the top of my head, but like Apple just played a 23 cent dividend. And I think he has like a hundred million shares or something like he makes plenty of money on a yearly basis. I totally get it and applaud Buffett for that. Is, is a question here from you then there's one that you threw out of like, how much money do you really need? And yeah. therefore, how much does someone really need to get paid? There's maybe a, a secondary one of what happens to that money if it doesn't go to the CEO? Oh. Would would the shareholders of your organization love to have another half million dollars that is well distributed out? I don't know. That's where, yes, the the argument typically goes, oh, well, this CEO has a unique set of skills. Look at the value creation. And the market's really competitive. We want him to create value for us rather than someone else. So that's the market rate. That's what we need to pay. Makes sense. Free market economics. Again, totally on board. But yeah, I think that could be reinvested in content for Disney. It could be reinvested in their parks. It could change your average employee compensation package significantly. If you just had a, a billion extra dollars, say you only got paid $100 million, if you just had a billion extra dollars in the comp pool, like what could you do with your senior execs or maybe like your so-called average employees, I would venture that there's better places for that money to be spent. But hey, yeah. Disney's created $160 billion worth of value. So they're clearly doing something right. Like, I think, again, this is, I'm not really calling anyone out. Yeah, I'm just. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, it's, 
it's interesting and it also I, the question going back to even your point around like unique set of skills et cetera et cetera what is the amount that that individual would need to get paid what's even ignoring the the absolute dollar figure what is the excess compensation that they are receiving over what they would need to receive in order to keep the job and do the job at that level is also like an interesting question so let's talk Morgan's piece because okay, this is I think this is truly I don't even mean to talk about a billion bucks like this is truly what I'm so fascinated with. So um, Morgan talks about dopamine in the brain yep. and this competitive nature of almost spending money. I see this all over the place and we talk about this on the show a bunch. But one of the first things he says is and and think back maybe we'll take everyone back to when they're 15 or 16 or 17 and you don't have a car, right? Ooh, yeah. When you don't have a car, what are you dreaming of, Douglas? You're dreaming of any car. Dreaming about the bus. (laughs) No, no one's dreaming about the bus. (laughs) Right? You get literally any car. My first car, one window didn't roll down. If you drove for more than like 50 minutes at a time, stopped to get gas and tried to start the thing again you'd have to let the engine cool down for about five minutes before that thing would fire back up like literally any car right i i i i had a car this wasn't my first thing it was my second but when i got out of the car i'd have to unhook the battery because when the car just sat it the battery would drain so so when i'd give somebody a ride i'd be like hold on i gotta pop the hood right quick and then i have to put the battery back on there there was a my my first car was uh was gifted to me by like just another family in town and they the guy was like this is the second fastest car in town i just want you to know what you're getting i was like oh i was like what's the first he goes i don't know but not this one (laughs) so anyway continue (laughs) so any car you and i have some good examples of any car right then you have your car. Maybe it's a two thousand dollar car. Maybe it's a five thousand dollar car. You drive that thing. You get you get used to that lifestyle. A buddy of mine says, "Luxury once tasted becomes a necessity." Right. So basically, you, that five thousand dollar car, man. That all that's like, I like this. And look at that ten thousand dollar car over there. You save up. Maybe you take out a loan. You get that ten thousand dollar car. Once you get out, you're dreaming of the $20,000 car, $20,000 to the $50,000 car, $50,000 to $100,000 car. Like this is in Morgan's piece. It's a great example. There's, you're always trying to get that next dopamine hit to say, oh, you know, now you and I both drive very reliable, fine cars. But I told you three weeks back, I was looking at electric SUVs like, oh, that'd be cool. But it actually won it. But that's the trick our brain is playing on us. You know, it's a very Buddhist philosophical like angle that this is taking. Talk to me about that. Just the the principle that people always it's the same principle. The people people always want more, right? And there's like um just being satisfied with like where you are, uh dispelling material like needs because otherwise there's like a statement, I can't remember what it is, but it's it's a statement that's kind of like that involves water. Like the fact that water will fill whatever the size of the of like the bucket is and that's kind of how human wants are and yeah. so yeah i like I, I wish i could i should have having the fact that i just brought up buddhism i should have had more to back that up but i just it uh made me go back to my buddhist readings 
No, all good. But I, I was fascinated by this uh, this week and have been fascinated by it. And what where my head explodes is when I see something like that Bob Iger figure and I go, did Bob as a 20 year old kid ever go like, you know, the right paycheck for me over a 15 year period? It's probably one point one billion dollars. I can't imagine he did that. Now, maybe he did. But at that point. Uh, sorry, it's still not about Bagger. At that point, the person collecting a billion dollar paycheck, the only thing I can imagine that's going on in their head is a competition with other really, really wealthy CEOs to see who's making more money because I don't know how you spend that much. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Do you know when, again, ignoring the Bob Iger piece, but when figures like that are quoted do you know if that's the figure that they were compensated at the time or if it's like, for example, in 2007, if Bob Iger got, I'm not going to do the math here. Right. But like a million dollars in. And then in, in stock and then it grew. Yeah. yeah. Like, I, I don't know um, what it obviously would have had to be more than that. But so this is straight from the Wall Street Journal. It says realized one point one billion in total compensation. So I think there is some equity growth in there. And this was a analysis of proxy materials completed by Equilar, uh, equity compensate or a compensation okay. data firm. I mean, yep. so yeah, and, and again, sorry, I don't even. I wish I almost wanted to said his name. Like, it's not about him. Yeah. It's just about that kind of dopamine piece and how we battle that in our brain. Because for everyone, your current paycheck plus twenty percent sounds awesome. And a lot of people are blessed to get that year after year or decade after decade. And you know what still sounds good to them at this time? Their current paycheck plus 20%. Yeah, exactly. That's a, it's just an equation, no matter what <laughs> yeah, you yeah, put in the right. first cell, right? Yeah, I, I love that. I, and I, I'm going to use that as a transition point, as a fishbowl transition point, if Wait. that's cool. Does that work? Yeah. yeah. There's, there was this sub stack that came out in the past couple of weeks that laid out a 2010 investment letter from Seth Klarman. Seth Klarman runs a Baupost fund. He's a value investor of lore. And the reason that 2010 is interesting here is because what, and let me pop this open so I can give credit where credit's due for the author. Uh, Connor McNeil put together this, this sub stack it's on investment talk, and it's called The Forgotten Lessons of 2008, Seth Klarman. So why 2010 is important here? Because 2010 came a couple years after the great financial crisis in 2008. And basically what it's saying is Seth Klarman was like, two years ago, the world was coming to an end. Investors were getting punched in the face on the regs, yep. right? And now I'm looking out in the market and it looks like you're acting like that never happened. Uh, mm -hmm. And so Seth Carmen wrote this, this piece that had, it was 20 investment lessons. I will not lay them all out for you all here, but I'm going to start with, I, I picked out five and I want to start with one that just reminded me of uh, what you were just talking about a little bit. So one of the ones he says is, nowhere does it say that investors should strive to make every last dollar of potential profit. Consideration of risk must, must never take a backseat to return. 
to look at the the first half of that around every last dollar of profit, when I think about what you were just discussing on the dopamine hit is you could have, most people probably don't have sell criteria, right? Like when you're going to sell your investment. But yeah. even if you do and you get to that, and if you see this upward trajectory, then you're like, this plus 20% sounds better than this price. Of right? course it does. Yeah. Yeah. Of, co- of course it always does. And from a discipline perspective, I think that it is important for nowhere does it say that investors should strive to make every last dollar of potential profit, right? You should be disciplined. Now, at the same time, you can sell too early. Like, I know that that's a thing. And usually, like, there's there's statements that say that people typically sell winners too early and typically hold on to losers too long, right? Like, that's like a, a thing that's thrown out there. I don't know if there's science behind it or whatever, but that's something that's thrown out there. So it's it's a balance. But you just reminded me of that that one point uh, from Seth Carmen. I have a, mm-hmm. I have four others. I don't know if you have a comment on that one before I hit on a couple others. No, I want to hear the others. Cool. Another one is things have never happened before. Things that have never happened before are bound to occur with some regularity. Love that. Yeah, this to me is what I was saying with the misbehaving markets book. It's the fat tails piece. Like yep. it, the 24 Sigma events actually happens in financial markets because of how complex it is. Yep. All right, here's another one. You must buy on the way down. There is far more volume on the way down than on the way back up and far less competition among buyers. It is almost always better to be too early than too late, but you must be prepared for price markdowns on what you buy. Thank you, Mr. Klarman. I struggle with this. It feels terrible every time to buy meta at 160 and then buy meta at 120 and then buy meta at 95. It totally sucks. So I just appreciate <laughs> the reassurance from uh, legend. And there are, there's so much that sits behind this one. I'm going to uh, pull out a couple phrases and also explain them. So there's far more volume on the way down than on the way back up. What that's saying is, and the volume he's talking about is like when, if you are buying a stock, let's say, that means someone is selling you that stock. Mm-hmm. And when things are going down, there are more sellers. Because people be scared, right? People be scared. I kind of want to bring up the diamond hands, paper hands, Bruce Lee um, <laughs> gift that I sent over to you. We'll, we'll just put that in the Substack though. But when people are panicking, let's just say, I'll just use panicking just to go to the extreme. If people yeah. are like, are panicking and selling, that's where there's a lot of volume. There's a lot, there's a, there's a lot of ability for you to buy because everyone's trying to sell. When it hits the bottom is typically at a point where it's the absolute pessimism. Right. And so therefore people are real scared. Right. And when you're so at that point, if you're trying to to buy, then there's less volume. Right. It's like basically what he's saying. And so at that point, you also have less competition. Right. Which goes along with the volume point. Uh, and then the better to be early than too late. For me, this point, uh, it corresponds largely with investment horizon. Because if you have a if you have a short investment horizon, like if you're trying to day trade, let's go to the extreme. If you're trying to day trade, then you can't be too early or too late. Like you kind of have to hit that yeah. bet on the head. Which but, is why days traders always lose money because you can't do it. There you go. But if, you, if you're if you saying, I'm going to buy this for years, whatever that period of years is, then most likely like being a little too early, you can't be, I'm not talking like, you know, the market's going to crash and you start shorting the market in 2012, right? When the market doesn't go down until 2020, but but being like a little too early uh, is is better. And from what Seth is saying here, 
All right. Last one. Beware leverage in all forms. And then there's a bunch of stuff that he writes. And if you, when I, um, we're going to put this out and when you read it, I'm skipping a few sentences that he has in this point, but going to the last point. So beware leverage in all its forms. Even if you are unleveraged, the leverage employed by others can drive dramatic price and valuation swings. Sudden unavailability of leverage in the economy may trigger an economic downturn. This really hits home for me because uh, I just finished reading uh, a book very, very nerdy right? Very, very nerdy. Most of the books I read are nerdy anyway. This one is called More Money Than God. Have you read that? No. It goes back through uh, histories of hedge funds. I think it's interesting for those that want to read about the history of hedge funds, and in particular, uh, like certain moments in time, like it, it, uh, it cataloged like when Soros and, and Druckenmiller shorted the pound, right? Like it went like, kind of like the minute by minute, hour by hour of how what they were thinking and what they did. And so if you're into that, it's interesting. 99.999% of the population is not only uninterested in that, but have already shut off this particular recording. But anyway, I just read uh, More Money Than God. And the reason that this makes me think about that one uh, is because it highlights so much of the leverage that could sit in the system which is what he's saying here, that even if I'm not borrowing money, if I'm investing in things that are highly levered, then you end up in a place, and that, and if they're highly levered, and they're, they might be investing in things that are also highly levered, right, and derivatives and all this other stuff, then effectively, that's leverage in a form. And he's saying, beware of leverage in any form. So that's the, and it's not avoid leverage in any form, it's saying beware, just to be clear, there's a difference there. Yeah, I, definitely. Really good point. It's something you have to think about, even if it's not on your balance sheet. I liked um, point 12 as well. Make sure that you're well compensated for illiquidity because you can find a deal, right? And if I find a stock that I think is trading at 50% off, that's one of the largest companies in the world versus uh, a small illiquid like OTC stock, well, I need more of a discount in the to deal with that potential illiquidity because it means i can't get out i can't get in or out nearly as quickly as i want to which changes your time horizon which changes everything so um i thought that was a good one yeah that's a good one too all right you just talked about books the next thing on my uh list is i think you made it through uh the wealthy barber this week i did i did finally you've been talking to me about the wealthy barber since we were in diapies I want to talk to you about, so I think the hokiness of it maybe got in the way of some of the principles, which I understand, but I want to talk to you, to you specifically about that point because we texted about this. I mean, I think it is pretty hokey that he's a barber in the Northern US, where are they, Michigan or somewhere? And uh, like the the story that's concocted to try and teach some of these basic personal finance things, I always thought was just... A little hokey, but not the main reason I was there, you know, like, so I pushed it to the side and I'm curious how that worked out for you. So I'll say this. I, I enjoyed the book for the reasons that you recommended. So it's much simpler than other, other books that are like this, like, and by simpler, I mean, it breaks it down to like relatable and understandable, uh, everyday type of stuff. 
Um, it covers a broad range of financial areas in like a storytelling way. Thought it was good. Talked to my wife about it. We uh, we like bought another copy of it. Like it's it's like it's it's like a part of our. Oh wow! Our uh, home, see, right? I thought it's you good. were much more lukewarm on it than that. No, 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 no. No, from yeah. for the, for the book's perspective, uh, I think it works. Where the lukewarm came from, because this is what you're talking <laughs> about, is I was like. We discuss all the time, and you know, passion of mine is I'm, how do we get these principles to the people that are generally speaking not going to be like learning this kind of stuff? And I just yeah. I pictured if you look at the cover of the book, yeah. the cover of the book is off-putting for certain populations. Yeah, right? it's hokey. It's and it's and it's um I think it was first written in the 80s, like some yeah. of it's definitely outdated in terms of uh, fees on investments and other things. But yes, you're, I think that's a very fair, not even a criticism, but like, uh, yeah, I hear you. Yeah. Because I always think, and th this might be oversimplified, but I believe that a lot of times when it comes to quote unquote complex and unapproachable topics, such as like money, finance, and investing, which I do not believe that they have to be complex or unapproachable, but that's like how they're viewed and sometimes positioned in society. When it comes to things like that, people, individuals will look for any reason why that does not apply to them. It's a great perspective. I think, right? Yeah. And here I'm like, there's so many. Like I look at the cover, that don't apply to me. I'm like, yeah. Port Huron, that don't apply to me. Who the yeah. heck is this barber? That might apply to me. A barber might apply to me. That barber don't apply to me, right? There's like no. so many like aspects of that. And so that's where I just started thinking, like, how do you, how do you get this into like the hands it's of the people like, that be like, could see themselves in it? Yeah. I mean, it's like, if I remember correctly, heavy on golf and I think they have vacation homes and it, it's like very targeted to this type of person. Yeah. That's, that's good feedback. I appreciate it. Mm. Um, but, but it's cool. It has like a chapter on different like types of financial instruments, I'll say, because it's like life insurance and like it's it just hits on so many areas that I, it's cool. Like, thank you for I, I it's kind of it feels disingenuous for me to say thank you for recommending it because you have brought it up so many times and it took like decades for me to, to pick it up. But uh, but still, thank you. Finally got to it. That's awesome. Well, so one of the next things for me is uh, I want to talk about your favorite subject to the U S consumer, but if that's mm -hmm. not on your list, I'll kick it to your fishbowl first. Uh, it's, I assumed we we're going to talk about it. So I didn't put it on my particular fishbowl list, but I'm excited to get to it. Uh, let's see which one of these things I'm going to stick with uh, investor investment letters okay. for a moment and hit on a couple points from Greenlight capitals, recent investment letter, David Einhorn, Greenlight Capital, Value Investment Shop. I loved a couple points from here. So one is, this starts off by saying, we made 37% in 2022. Which 37%. is massive. Yeah, which I, is I don't massive. know any anyone else off the top of my head. I haven't gone through all the hedge funds and stuff and like value investing shops. But that in 2022, when everything's down 17 to 20% is... Tip Solid. of the hat, man. Yeah. And what I loved most about that, aside from the fact, like, good for you. And through this, they talk about how um, it's been tough because it's been tough for value investors during this last, not all value investors. I just mean like the the value stocks, I should say, maybe in general, um, during this last bull run. And 
one of the things they say here, so talked about that, and then said, we are probably not as smart as we appeared in 2022, but we are probably not as dumb as we appeared in 2018 either. <laughs> the market environment, as we have been highlighting, turned extremely favorable for our strategy in a period that immediately followed one that was extremely unfavorable for our strategy. I just love like this. They just lay it out there. And I really like that. Well, no, there's so much to love about this letter. Um, one is at the end, he's like giving shout outs to a person on his team that got married and and a couple that had a kid. It, like it just, uh, yeah. it's a great letter. Real talk. One other section that I found particularly interesting is so they lay out what the portfolio was comprised of. And it was a mix of like long holdings, like so buying stocks and looking for them to appreciate. There were some shorts. There was a bunch of stuff in there. And there was a section on shorting bubbles that I found interesting to read. So what they started doing about a decade ago was creating this bubble basket of stocks that they would short in this bubble basket. And they went through a few iterations of the bubble basket. Generally didn't work out all that well for them because of the bull, the bull run that happened over the last decade. But yeah. there are a couple points I found interesting. So one is we define a bubble stock as one that if we look at the company's current and projected financials, counting stock compensation as an actual expense. I love that they, they pulled that out. as just like a little jab and jab <laughs> and perform a traditional valuation analysis. It could fall at least 80% and still not appear cheap to us. That is their definition of a bubble stock is if we do evaluation on this and it drops 80%, it still would not be cheap. And that is what they define as a bubble. If you think about the uh, the reverse idea of a margin of safety, like that, that's kind of an interesting nope. look on it. So then it goes through this whole thing where they have like bought stocks and some of them like quadrupled after this. So like it didn't, you know, it didn't quite work out. Some of them ended up growing into their valuation. But they started this in 2013 and said, in 2013, it was a year of enormous gains for a number of speculative stocks. In early 2014, the bubble appeared to be breaking and we created our first bubble basket. This proved to be very premature. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> like, like seven years. Yeah, yeah exactly. I absolutely <laughs> loved it. Then one, one other point, one other point here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a big assumption on who they're talking about here, but I don't think it's that big of an assumption. This is talking about the bubble stocks again. In early 2021, we also identified an actively managed ETF of so-called innovation stocks that, <laughs> <No>. appear, <laughs> that appear to us to have significantly similar characteristics to our bubble names. We shorted a basket comprised of the components of that ETF in February 2021 that we ramped up to 9% of capital. It has declined 76% from our first entry. We don't even oh. need to name it. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Shout out to Greenlight Capital. All right, here's the other thing I just have to mention. So he's kind of talking about 2022, but he's also talking about the current environment, quoting Field of Dreams. And so Shoeless Joe Jackson goes to Archie Graham, right? He goes, the first two were high and tight. So where do you think the next one is going to be? And Archie's like, well... Either low and away or in your ear. Shoeless Joe goes, well, he's not going to want to load the bases, so look for low and away. Archie Graham's like, right. You know, he's the young kid. This is his first professional at bat. And as he's walking away, Shoeless Joe goes, but watch out for in your ear. This is <laughs> yeah. the market right now. Man. Yes. There's like some deals out there. It's been like bubbly. And you think that a strike has to come your way? 
but man, it still might come in your ear. Yeah, exactly. That is exactly right. I love it. All right. You want to dive into consumer stuff? Is that your next in your fishbowl? Yeah. So I really, I mean, I, I really pulled this article just for you. The Wall Street Journal has an article, another great headline. Um, the U.S. consumer is starting to freak out, just like facts and charts about the U.S. consumer. And one of the really interesting things, we've talked about this, but as consumer price index was increasing rapidly over the last like 24 to 30 months, um, retail sales were outpacing that growth. And one of the reasons that was possible was because the personal savings rate was off the charts as people got checks for a COVID stimulus and everything else. So people built up their savings account and then they spent more than inflation. But now they're finally running out of that savings. Um, here's a few stats. So credit card balances were up 15% on the year, ending in the third quarter, um, which is the largest increase in more than two decades. If we talk about the ports of Los Angeles and Long Beach, which we've talked about a ton, like we were two years ago when no one could get the supply chains were uh, messed up in those ports and there were boats as far as the eye can see waiting to dock. They're down 21% in December and have been below 2019 levels since August. Like things are just maybe crumbling here. Now, this is on the news of an incredible jobs report that came out Friday, though. So it's a schizophrenic economy, but the, I think the U.S. consumer is struggling more than they have been in recent times. I mean, the the reason you state that you pulled this one for me is because this is something I've been just riled up about for the last 12 to 18 months. I don't know, know how long at this point. And I think so agreed yesterday, the jobs report was bonkers, crazy, What like three times what the estimates would be um, as to how many jobs were added. Yeah, way bonkers, surprised everybody. I think though, the, the thing is that we end up by we, I mean, broadly, um, the the world ends up comparing data that has different lag times, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And I mean, I'm still in the same place that I've been at where people are, future people are hurting. They just don't know it yet. And this is starting to say that some of them already know it, right? This combined with, it's it's in here too a little bit, but then there's that other piece around people pulling money out of their 401ks, right? And uh, like it's the consumers are not in a in a good state and you can look at you can look at um what we can call like stock variables meaning i don't i don't mean equities i mean if you look at uh like static numbers balance sheets that kind of stuff if you look at that you can be like oh that that doesn't look bad like this looks pretty good but if you look at the change right as you were just talking about if you look at the rate of change in savings rates spending rates all that it does not look favorable and you zoom out into the future i'm personally scared i think that the number of jobs that are getting added are making people feel like jobs are still available for me i can still i can still do what i want i can switch and whatnot and i think that there's only a matter of months i hope not what i'm about to say is i hope not but i believe that the corporate tide is going to continue turning it's been churning through the quote-unquote i don't know what do you call it white collar workers whatever i don't know tech yeah. workers yeah. um and i don't know 
uh, it just it doesn't look it doesn't look favorable to me. So I'm I get it gets sad for future folks. But if we can just calm down a little bit, it doesn't have to it doesn't have to be that bad. Just calm down a little bit. Well, you mentioned that more people are tapping their 401ks right now than average. Um, the other really interesting piece from this article is it broke down by different income levels the share of U.S. adults whose monthly expenses were greater than their income. Mm -hmm. So if you make less than 50K, 27% of that population has expenses exceeding their income right now. 50 to 100K, it's almost 15% of the population that have expenses exceeding their income. And 100K is almost 10% of folks. Yeah. It's craziness. Yeah. And it compounds month over month. It's going to be rough. It's going to be rough. Uh, I... I know you're going to hate everything about this. And the reason you're going to hate everything about this is because it's silly to talk about stuff like this, but I yeah. am so interested in it. Bringing on uh, historical analogies. That's <laughs> what I'm about to do. There's, there's a lot that when I like kind of look at, and this is purely, I'm not taking into account all variables one, because I can't and two, because I'm just not. But when I was thinking about last year and the hit that happened last year and where my other, I don't know, spidey senses and indicators, whatever say that we are. The historical analogy that it reminds me of is 1970. Yeah. If you're spidey sense, if we if we start making forecasts with a spidey sense, we get kicked off the podcast. I, I don't know. This is in the ground rules, Douglas. Like it's Skippy talking about the <laughs> The Skippy, I you're just gonna leave a blank though. It'll be Skippy and <laughs> Skippy and friends. <laughs> yeah, and friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, it's, it's interesting. The reason I, I bring that up, though, is because uh, 1970 was a rough year in the stock market. It was kind of like the uh, the tremor before the real storm. So if you go from the 1960s up until the uh, mid-1960s, up until 1970, the S&P 500 went up like uh, 2x or so, something like that during that period. Then in 1970, you get like it, go, it goes down like 30% over the not, not purely in the year, but like over the course of a 12 to 18 month period goes down like 30%. Then you pop back up until 1973. And then you have a two year rough go at it. So that what we know is that that exactly is not going to occur. But my my broader point there is that I think we might be in a period where we got hit. That's not the I, I still do not think that we are in the full hit right now. I still do think that there's the potential that we recover back to all time highs. And then it falls off a cliff. So that's all. Whether that takes yeah. two years, three years, two months, like who the heck knows. But now the S&P 500 is roughly 15% off of its all-time high. So it's like not a wild thing uh, to consider it goes back there. Yeah, this is the last thing on my list. And, uh, you know, I hate predictions, so I don't even want to do it. But let's just, if if it's just friends talking, like I don't handle my stocks going up as quickly as they have gone up in 2023. Well, I don't like it at all. It feels <laughs> so bubbly. Like it, your stocks is off the cheesy. I don't. Let's cheesy. not talk about it because I don't want to jinx anything. But Sorry. oh my goodness! Like, and so I don't know. I'm definitely more focused on my portfolio than I am the overall market. So yep. uh, maybe I'm disconnected from that. I don't know if like. Most people feel that way, but I just am going, man, this, uh, no mean reversion needed to happen. We needed to come way back down 
and continue down for an extended period of time. And all of a sudden we just decided to party in 2023. <laughs> like, I don't know, someone popped some champagne and here we go. It's craziness again. Well, that that's the reason why Connor McNeil wrote about that Seth Klarman investment letter, because they're like, did hold on. <laughs> Everything just happened over the last couple of years. We had all these bubbles and then people were like, why are you stupid in the bubbles? Why are you day trading all this stuff? And he goes, and now I'm just seeing it starting to happen again. And it's been yep. a year. <laughs> like, and, it, by, and it feels like a head fake. Like, it just yeah. feels like, oh, this is one last puff of craziness before we actually come back down to reasonable evaluations or something. And, but I hate doing that because I, I think you even said that six months ago when things were trending down. You were like, I think we're going to get one more head fake before it actually comes back to fair value. And I just can't believe the kind of greed that's out there right now or appears to be because stocks are just going crazy. Yeah, they are. Can I go into my last item then? Yeah. Okay. Big disclaimer before this last item. We're going to talk about some real stuff, some real, like an actual equity that we own. I want to talk about it because I'm talking to my friend here and I'm curious, but this by no means is a recommendation for you to do anything with this. I just think it could be an interesting discussion for y'all. So I want to talk about Meta. Mm -hmm. So Meta, a couple quick facts. In September 2021, Meta peaked at around 380, like last peak. In October 2022, the last bottom was around 90, and now it's trading at about 185. Okay. Mm -hmm. So both of us own Meta, bought into Meta, and I'm curious what your current thought process is. I don't know if you had a, a sell point or sell criteria already in mind. This has been like the recovery is so quick, <laughs> like that I'm not saying this is the ultimate recovery. I just mean like the price change over the last like four months, it's doubled, has been so quick. I'm curious what your thought process currently is. Yeah, so if you go back in your text, remember there's like a scribble from me two years back when it was still, when the ticker was still FB. And I took a, a picture of the morning star screenshot. You're not gonna be able to find it. I see you on your phone. And I scribbled on top FB 160. That was my, like, something like two years ago. That was my back of the envelope calculation on my buy points. Now, my buy point is not the valuation because I like to have a huge margin of safety, right? I've always thought, and I hate to be this specific, but guys on the pod, this is not an investing recommendation. This is not something you should do with your money. This is me and Dougal's chatting. I always thought true value was definitely north of 260 and maybe closer to the 300 range. So I started building my position in the 160 range, rode all the way down and actually made some purchases in the 90s. And that was like, you know how it is, dude. It was like, I was like, well, I've deployed all my cash back at 120. Like I was like scrounging to try and find money to throw into it, uh, which is really tough to do psychologically. But I just felt like it was not worth 90 bucks a share. I woke up at 3 a.m. Skippy was in my sock drawer. Looking for change. That's right. <laughs> I got a few pennies in there. <laughs> and uh, and now it just, the thing just exploded. I mean, yeah. um, and kind of for good reason. This is why I love buying cheap stuff because the littlest positive news can just make the thing explode because people are going, well, just a year ago, this was in the 300s. You had, we talked last week about Bill Gurley seeming to go out of his way to be like, 
one stock that's odd right now is meta the cash flow is great and it's like cheap you know like i think yeah. there's a lot of momentum around this and so do i expect it to just go up from here no i expect it to fall back down and be crazy turbulent and have people freak out and if we have a three-year down run i expect it to continue maybe it'll trend back down to 100 bucks a share but i think there's a lot more upside long term i don't plan on selling it anytime soon yeah it's one of those uh it's one of those things that's a, it's really annoying to me these circumstances and uh, but they happen all the time so i'm just annoyed a lot but it's part of the fun for me <laughs> the stock market is so if you recall i was like i don't want i have no interest in owning this stock like it's just it's like not a stock i don't no. like the stock i don't no. like the ceo it just got too cheap i couldn't ignore it no interest and i said uh because when i when i was looking at it though i had it it was it was like one of the know, probably like 15 stocks that i had in like a watch list like it wasn't my real watch list but it was this is stuff that's in a watch list and i think the number that i had for it at the time was like if it starts to hit like around the the 170 180 that's interesting but i actually don't have any interest in buying it until it's like if it's in the 150s it's hard to resist that was like my so then it got to the 150s if you recall and i was like crap but i really don't want to i just don't <laughs> want to own this stock and then it was when it got down to the 130s i was like okay well like i mean this is just if you're going to give away your money then yeah. i guess you know i'll take it and then as you did started buying it down and with it coming back up to like the 190s i'm just like i'm not it's not i'm this is not a sell thing i'm just kind of like this is a point where i wouldn't have bought it like it's it's no. at like a point where i wouldn't have purchased it which is just like annoying i love that perspective because it's like you're not personally invested in this. You never really wanted to own it. It's not like a company yeah. that you can root for. And that's different when you hold like sometimes see pretty much all my stuff is like about the dollars and cents of it. It's like this auto part manufacturer in New <laughs> yeah. Jersey. It's cheap. I bought it. I don't really care about the auto parts, but your typical approach is more like dive into the company. You're almost rooting for the company. Yeah. You're like, truly invested and i could get to the you're like okay well it's not unquestionably cheap anymore it's like maybe yep. in the range of fair value so i could understand kind of wanting to dump it around here yeah it's it's at the point where if it is if it's like between here and 200 dollars a share after my uh long-term capital gains would kick in i might consider like unleashing yeah, it because yep. it's also i don't know something like 12 to 13 percent of not my overall portfolio but of like the um my individual stock pick portfolio so if you take the quantitative yeah, yeah. out of it so it's like a sizable chunk that i don't want to own <laughs> of the stuff that i kind of pick and so uh if if after the year i think i might consider it but i'm not not right now it's a it'll, it'll be an interesting ride I lied when I said I, that was my last thing. I got one thing. I just got to reward the listeners who made it to the end of the show with us. Um, <laughs> Dougals, you might have to cut this. I'm gonna. This is a a show for the kids, but there's one thing I got to talk about. So, um, oh, I know where you're going. Academic research paper, <laughs> man. Okay, so the male reproductive organ. I think is how I'm gonna say it. It was about that and fast cars and. <laughs> These academic researchers basically lied to middle-aged males about the average size of a reproductive organ. And then they, so they did that. They it basically created a comparison because between 
uh, them and this average that was artificially inflated to make people think that uh, regardless of how things are, they're on the small side, right? Wait, what was inflated? <laughs> the the male reproductive organ or the... Yeah, yeah, the average. So they're like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> the average size is significantly larger than the average, which yeah. makes them feel self-conscious and feel like they're on the small side. I don't know if I'm doing a good job talking through this. And then they ask them to judge how much they wanted to buy a sports car, basically. <laughs> <laughs> do you know what they found? Yes, I do. <laughs> they were more likely to want to buy a sports yeah. car where they were feeling a little uh, right. self-conscious. I'm going to go to brass tacks here because okay. to, just to, to make sure that, that folks get this. So there was a study that took a couple groups of men and they said, we're going to tell this group of men that the average penis size of males <laughs> is lower than the actual average. And we're going to tell this other group a different number. And what they found was that when they told individuals that the average penis size was higher, was larger than the yes. actual average penis size, that those individuals were more likely to want to buy fast luxury vehicles. The, assuming overcompensation. It ties a bit back to your... The Morgan household piece. Sorry, Morgan, <laughs> I, I apologize to you, Morgan, for associating you with this, but it kind of ties back to it, right? Am I wrong? You're right. And thank you for just like saying it. That's what I should have done instead of being <laughs> around the bush. Um, I mean, in instead, you thought it might be better to talk about inflated male <laughs> <laughs> reproductive organs. <laughs> well, facts for life, kids. Uh, if you funny. love uh, analogies like that, rate and review the podcast um, and hit us <laughs> skippydiggles.com or skippydiggles at gmail.com for listener mail. Uh, thanks for having fun with us today, guys. And we'll talk to you soon.